0: Good morning, I too greet you in Jesus' name, glad to be here among the saints of God, and I too want to welcome our visitors and our returning return to missionary, welcome back, glad to have you here. So I don't know what you're anticipating this morning, um, I had um, um, spoke last time about the Holy Spirit and uh, I anticipated having a... Another talk on that. However, this is Palm Sunday and I, I debated, do I just go ahead and go with the Holy Spirit thing or do I, do I focus on Palm Sunday? And I went one direction for a while and then I went another. I decided we're going to talk about the Palm Sunday event um, as it is given in the, in the Bible. And I settled on that because, you know, there's not very many events that are recorded in all four of the Synoptic Gospels. But when it gets into the events surrounding Easter and, and those sorts of things, suddenly that's that's enough that all four of the writers give a fair amount of, um, of uh, detailed description of what happened around that time. And I also thought of different of our... Um, Uh, people of our Anabaptist uh, heritage, specifically the Amish, good, bad, or otherwise, they hear the same thing once a year. It just kind of goes around and around. And so I thought, well, I guess we can focus on Palm Sunday and get here uh, today. I think it's it's well worth our time. So you can turn with me to uh, Matthew 21. We'll use this for a text today. It's not very often that I give a title to my... um, to my sermons, I'm just not good with titles, i let you decide what that is, maybe my thoughts are too random to have titles most of the time, but today I have one, it's called People, Palm Branches, Ponies, and the Prince of Peace, a 21st century reflection on the triumphal entry, that's way too wordy for a a, a good title, a good title is five words, that's about ten or twelve, but we're going to go with that because that's the best I could do. Okay, we're going to read this this account. Matthew 21, verse 1. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and were come to Bethphage, Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you will find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them, bring them to me. If any man... Say, Ought unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass, the colt, put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches from the trees and straw them in the way. The multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he he healed them. And when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased, and he said unto and said unto him, Hearest thou what these say? Jesus said unto them, Yea. Have ye never read, out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, thou hast perfected per- praise? And he left them, and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Okay, so uh, the events leading up to this um, this particular account are somewhat of interest to me too. If you go back into chapter 19. Um, we have the interchange between um, the children of Zebedee, this mother and her sons that come, and, and they desire this certain thing, and the certain thing turns out to be that they'd like to have a spot in the kingdom there. And um, Jesus gives a little teaching on that, and he said, Look, um, you can have a spot, but it may not be what you uh, are asking for. It may not be what you anticipate. And, and I think that, um, I, I bring that out because I think that will be important as we move along here to to keep that context in mind. So let's first of all look at the people of this account and draw some lessons from them. So we have uh, a few groups of people. We have the disciples. The disciples, of course, had done an awful lot of time with Jesus over the course of the last few years. And they had been a witness to Many things. They had seen many important things happen. They had seen lepers healed, dead raised, blind received sight, deaf here. Um, they, they had seen uh, many wonderful things. And in, as a matter of fact, they had even ex- experienced on a, at least an occasion or two the ability to um, do some wonderful things themselves. Um, at one point they were sent out and they came back and they said to Jesus you, you wouldn't believe this but we had the ability to cast out devils we got that done and Jesus said well that's great but he said just remember there's something greater and the fact is that your, books, your, your names are written in the book of life that's a whole lot more important than casting out devils but anyway we come to this chapter now and Jesus now has this request of, of them at least two of them he says go into yonder village and find me this colt. And um, you're going to find him here tied it, it, where two ways cross. We find that in another one of the Gospels. that he gives pretty specific direction where they'll find this colt. And he said, you, uh, you get these, get that colt. And here in Matthew it says the mother as well. And, and you bring that back to me. And in my mind, I think he said, now James and John, you go do that. He's, he, it says that he, he's, he told two of his disciples to do it and we don't know who it was but I'm going to allow my imagination to think it was James and John if you want to have a spot in the kingdom of heaven go fetch the donkey please for me that's what I need from you today and, and I will say the disciples did well they, they did exactly what Jesus asked of them there seemed to be no fuss uh, at least we don't have um, anybody arguing about who should go fetch the donkey anyway they just went and they did it and it seems they followed through on Jesus' request quite perfectly. And when they brought the donkey back, they were quite willing to drape their garments over the donkey so that Jesus could, could ride on this donkey. This, of course, was a custom that was not unknown at that time to um, offer one's clothes uh, for the purpose of a, of a um, what would you say, a king... Or whatever to ride on this animal. That was, that was a custom that was done. If you read 2 Kings 9, you would see they did the same thing to Jehu whenever he was anointed king. So, what are some lessons we can learn from these disciples today? Well, number one, follow God perfectly. J- j- just do that. Uh, when he says there's a donkey over there where the ways cross and, and it's time for you to go fetch the donkey, just do that. Do that. Follow it perfectly. You know, what if the two would, along the way, would have kind of started talking to one another and say, you know, um, if we encounter a donkey that has been ridden a time or two, wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't that be a better option? Maybe, you know, maybe we'll do that. Um, you know, does Jesus really know he's asking for an unbroken donkey? Uh, do we want a scene? Should we do that? Ah, let's go with a different one. How would that have worked out? Well, they didn't do it. They followed God perfectly. They didn't try to help God out. They, uh, they took Jesus at his word. You know, the thing that, uh, oftentimes gets us into trouble and really gets, uh, modern Christianity in trouble is the fact that they allow reasoning and common sense to trump the clear teachings of the Bible. And as soon as you start doing that, you run into a host of trouble. And that's why we have the scenario that Mark described to us here at at, at a Methodist church. It is simply because we had to help it out a little bit. And what what do you end up with when you try to help it out? You end up with a train wreck every time. The second lesson I'd like to draw from these disciples is the mundane is vitally important. I have no idea what uh, the physical condition of these disciples were at this point, but maybe they were tired. Maybe they didn't feel like going to yonder village and fetching a donkey. Perhaps, I don't know. Um, But they did it. It was a very mundane thing. Hardly worth a mention. But it's mentioned and they did it. You know, Jesus said it another time when when he was teaching the disciples. He said, If you pass out a cup of cold water, even in the name of a disciple that will not go unnoticed. Now, there's a lot more to that context. But what he's saying is, you know, you don't have to be a prophet or a priest or a king to be noticed. In my kingdom, you pass out water, you get noticed, and you will be richly rewarded for that. Don't try to find a place of significance in the kingdom of God. The place of significance will find you the third lesson I would like to draw from these disciples am I publicly announcing that Jesus is king by draping those garments over that donkey they were in a very personal way announcing to the crowd that Jesus was worthy to ride on these clothes what personal things am I using to announce that Jesus is king Let's look at the multitude now here for a minute, draw some lessons from them. The multitude was a mixed bag of very excited onlookers. I believe you had everything there from people that were convinced that this was indeed an important person. This was the Messiah. I believe you had everything from that to the, to the person that just loved drama. They were there for the fun and games. They were there because there was a crowd of people. Um... Luke tells us that they were intrigued by the mighty works that they had witnessed. And John tells us that at least a portion of the crowd was there to see Lazarus. And you know they had heard he was risen from the dead, so they were kind of excited about that. So they were there to see Lazarus more, or, or at least even, as they were to see Jesus. So I think you had everything from legit to skeptical to just plain down curious. But it does seem like that the crowd was, was quite excited and we get, the, we get the feeling that by and large they were all saying the same thing. Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Now, you know, we, we think of those words as, as just a spontaneous um, uh, glorification of, of Jesus here. But, but really, the, the, uh, if you'd have lived in that day, what they were really saying is, please save us. We need, we need some salvation here and in the context they were thinking of freedom of course from the Roman government and, they were, and, and the word literally means save now save now we beseech you redress our grievances get us out of this oppression they were excited about the, lo- the possibilities of being at long last freed from this bondage of these Romans and something convinced them that this man could get it done It's also interesting to me though, when you go to verse 11 and the, and the crowd comes into Jerusalem and it seems like the people in Jerusalem kind of open their doors to see what's going on and they said to the crowd, who is this guy? And they said, he is the prophet. He's the prophet of Galilee. They were partially right. He, he was a prophet. The Bible speaks of him as a prophet, but he was so much more than a prophet. So much more. So while they had it partially right, I think the crowd was still a bit confused by and large who this person was. So what are some lessons that we can learn from this multitude? Number one, in the crowds of life today, where do you and I find ourselves? Are we the people that just are excited? Or are we the people that will be with Jesus when the crowds dissipate? We'll be like the Zacchaeuses of the world, who are willing to climb trees to see Jesus. Are we people that have come to church this morning to connect with Jesus, or to see about Lazarus? Which one do we fall in? I was intrigued this morning as we we talked in Sunday school that... um, you know, some churches, I, I fear, it's the truth. It's, so I, I guess, you know, we, we can say this. But there's too many churches that are built on a name. That's just the truth of it. It's a popular pastor. It's a big program. It's the popular place to be. It seems like the fancier the church and the and the more prestigious the, the preacher, the more people go. What's it about? Is it truly about following Jesus and worshiping him or is it about a program? Which is it? Another lesson. I I fear these crowds were all about me. It was save me. We're sick of this Roman rule. We're sick of going down the street and this Roman soldier nagging us and saying, hey, carry my bag of mine. We are sick and tired of the taxes. Save us. We're tired of it. Please, save us. I guess there was nothing wrong with... um, with that but it seemed a little it seems to me it was a little bit about too much about me save me so i can enjoy a better life i'm sick of this existence that i have how about you and me is it about me is is, is following jesus about me this morning is it about the things that he can do for me now truly he can do some things for us but is it about a better existence in this world or is it about advancing the kingdom of god Jesus says that if you're really serious about advancing the kingdom of God, you can expect that life sometimes just may not be all that gravy. It might be a little less than that or quite a lot less than that. There are many countless people. It was mentioned this morning about the folks in Egypt. Um, yeah, what about that? What if that was our, um, our lot this morning? Uh, does that sound like a pleasant existence? Well, physically speaking, not really. Not all that much. Christianity is not about me and easing my pains or making my life more pleasant, necessarily. The only thing, I, well, I shouldn't say that. One of the greatest things that Jesus can bring to us is that peace, that settled peace that no matter what happens, the world's in chaos, I can have a pleasant existence, nonetheless. The third lesson I'd like to draw from these people they were a little confused on who Jesus was. Are you today confused about who Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a prophet? Is he some uh, favorite storybook character that you read about in the Bible and in story Bible story books? Is he your friend? Is he your master? Who is he? I I so enjoyed a comment that uh, a friend of mine. As what actually, friend slash seed customer made to me here a few years ago. He said, you know, I was at a meeting. It was a farm meeting or whatever. And he said, I was really impressed with, the, um, with the, the speaker there. He said, we had an invocation for the meal. And he said, you know what? He talked like, he prayed like he knew who he was talking to. That's the way he put it. I thought, well, praise the Lord. That, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. Do we know who we're talking to? All right. The third group of people I'd like to just speak briefly about, we won't linger long on these people, but how about the chief priests and the scribes in verse 15? We know about these people, we've studied about them, we've talked about them, and we know that these guys were avowed enemies of Jesus and anything that 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 Jesus was for, they were automatically against, it seemed. It states that they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did. They didn't dispute that it was wonderful things. That, that they saw. But it says it displeased them. And they challenged Jesus and they said, You should not be allowing this to happen. Don't you understand this is completely inappropriate? What's with you, Jesus? And we all know what the problem was. They wanted the accolades. That's what it was. As a matter of fact, good old Pilate, a few days later, whenever they delivered him up to be crucified, it says in John that he knew that because of envy they had done it. Because of envy. Old Pilate, he's just a ruler there. He's no Christian. He doesn't have a lot of... He's not in the know, but he said, I can tell it's it's, it's because of envy. The lesson is is one from these guys here. Beware of the bitter root of envy. Beware. The proverb writer says of Proverbs 27, wrath is cruel, anger is outrageous, but who can stand before envy? Who can do that? Paul in Romans, when he's describing the reprobate mind in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 1, he says a reprobate mind is one that is full of envy. Envy will do vile things to a brotherhood. Beware of envy. I had to think of the epitome of the opposite of that. John the Baptist, whenever his disciples came to him and he said, hey, do you know Jesus' disciples are over here in the other river baptizing people? He said, that's fine. I have no issue with that. I must decrease he must increase. What a wonderful, what a wonderful thing. Have you ever stopped to consider what would have happened if the chief priests and the scribes and the elders and the Pharisees would have all embraced Jesus with open arms? What would have happened? I think the house of Israel would have been saved. I do. The problem was the people of influence of those days were so overcome with envy that they influenced the commoners that Jesus is somebody you leave them alone now that's that's all conjecture I have nothing to base that on other than a possibility but it is very possible that things would have been would have gone much better had envy not overcome these people all right the third group of people I want to look at and this is a very small group but this is the owner of the, of the pony I call him a pony it calls him an ass here but uh, I'm going with pony because that fits my title what about this what about these owners we know nothing Virtually nothing. We know they lived in this other town and we know they they lived at a crossroad. And we know that whenever the two disciples came out to untie untie this uh, mother and, and this foal, they said, hey, what's going on? And they said, the Lord has need of these things. And they said, okay, go ahead. Go ahead and do that. What's the lesson? Am I willing to give whatever God asks of me when he has need of it? I have no clue what these people were going to do with that pony that day. Maybe they wanted that pony. Maybe they wanted to do something with it. We don't know. But they were willing to let God have that thing that day. Never underestimate what God may ask of you. Uh, There was a boy one time with a little lunch and it ended up feeding multitudes. We know that story. When Moses is having his interchange... With, with God at that bush and they're talking about you know, what Moses is supposed to do Moses is like I can't do this and, and the Lord says to him what do you have in your hand and he said, I got a stick he said use that stick use that stick and go deliver your people from that tyrant there in Egypt with that stick what, does, what is God asking you it could be something extremely common and mundane All right, let's go to the second point, palm branches. We don't have palm trees here in our country, but in that day, in that place, they did. And um, the palm tree was a very, was a thing of, um, or I shouldn't say was, they still exist, but I'm told, but they're a thing of of beauty. They produce fruit, they provide shade, they uh, have some sap that's a little like honey, and uh, in that day at least they at least made a, a wine from this particular plant and on ancient coins the palm tree was often sim- the symbol of, Ju- of Judea the palm branches in particular were often used as an emblem of joy and victory not only by the Jews but also by the Romans it was kind of a universal, a universal symbol in other words and it's of interest to me that there's three times that, the, that palm branches are mentioned in the Bible specifically. So the first time it's mentioned in, in Leviticus whenever God has given some direction on how they should celebrate the Feast of Booths. And this is what he says in Leviticus 23.40. He says, "...and you shall take you on the first day the boughs the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees." and the boughs of thick trees and, of, and the willows of the brook and ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Now it's just interesting to me that part of this rejoicing there in Leviticus was cutting down some branches and specifically palm branches. In 1st Kings 6 we find that uh, Solomon when he built his temple it said he carved palm trees within and without on the walls. That was part of the decoration. And if we go to Revelation 7, 9 after the numbering of the 144,000 there, it says that John beheld this great multitude, and they were of all nations, kindreds, peoples, tongues, and these people stood before the throne and the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes, and they had palms in their hands. Okay. So every time we have this, the palms mentioned, there's a a few things that stick out in common. It's, it's, It's a collective group, and it's a time of rejoicing. It's just interesting that that uh, that's the case. And uh, just as a little aside, we sang a song this morning that I think is not correct. It said that they strewed olive branches in the way. It wasn't olive branches, it was palm branches. So, uh, for whatever that's worth. Okay, so what is the lesson today? How do we honor Jesus today? Is it appropriate to... Cut down a few branches out here and wave them around and shout Hosanna. I won't judge a person if he feels behooved to do a thing like that, I guess. But how do we do it? I think there's two ways. Jesus is quite clear in his teaching that if we want to honor him, we honor others. And I don't need to enlarge long on that. You know that. He says that when you do something for the least of somebody, you've done it for me. And that's how I'm going to know that you're going to honor me but as I thought on it a little bit more back to this thing that these palm branches are always referred to in scripture in a very physical way of showing honor to, to God or Jesus and kind of celebrating without inhibition and it's always in the context of a collective group you, you, never, you never read of a, of a single person just running down the street waving a palm branch it seems like it's always kind of a, a group thing alright I grappled with that a little bit because it's like, okay, how can I make application to that today? Um, Is there application? Uh, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that the day is coming and we live in that day that we worship God in spirit and in truth. And the other little aside, but it it, it applies, is we are mostly all of pretty stoic German stock and we have been been, um, taught the... um, the um, uh, virtue, I guess you would say, of worshiping without a lot of ado, and uh, I, I, I fit that category. I, I, can think I can worship God fairly comfortably without a lot of ado, I guess. Um, so, so, what? How can we appropriately celebrate Jesus in our collective worship? How is that done? Well, I'll just sum it up like this. If Jesus was here physically this morning, if he was here behind this podium instead of me, if that was the case, or any other point in this service, if he would have been the song leader or the Sunday school devotional leader or the Sunday school teacher, if he would have been there, would it have changed the energy you would have expended to get here this morning? Would it have changed the way you would have participated in the singing? or engaged in the Sunday school class? Would it have changed the the way you present yourself? Uh, Would anything have changed? Would you have perhaps prepared better uh, if Jesus would be here this morning? Um, Would you have chosen to take your nap at a different time? Um, Some of those things. How do we collectively show when we come together that Jesus is here? He's here and we appreciate it. And we're going to give him our best. I think those are some things we can at least think about. That's our way of waving palm branches today. How about the pony? Let's go to the pony. This colt, again, is uh, another part of the story that just has a brief mention. But it's a wonder that this colt, though never ridden, very cooperatively carries the master without a solitary hiccup. We sometimes make mention that this was a donkey rather than a horse and we make some, some distinction there that you know that was appropriate because um, horses were more what um, the royalty of the day would have ridden rather than, than donkeys. But I would just like to point out that in that day... Horses were a rarity anywhere uh, in, in, in uh, Jewish culture. There wasn't a lot of them around. And as a matter of fact, there's two judges. If you read in, um, in Judges 10 about this uh, Judge Jair, his name was, and then there's one in Judges 12, his name was Abdon. And we don't know, and they give one verse to these two judges. But you know what they say about him? The first one, it says that he had 30 sons and they rode 30 ass colts. Okay? And the second one says that um, he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons and they rode three and 10 ass colts. Okay, so it seemed pretty, um, it seemed like it was worthy of mention that these people had these donkeys. All right. So as I researched it a little bit, and I also want to mention that in, in Solomon's inauguration, he rode a donkey. It says he rode David's mule. That's what he did. While the donkey is a sign of peace, and it was appropriate that Jesus rode the donkey in that symbolism, it wasn't like the donkey was a despised animal. There was other people of quite high esteem that had ridden donkeys um, in times past. But it was rich in symbolism. Jesus has a peaceable kingdom, we know that. He he blessed the peacemakers. He told us that he's going to leave peace with us that the world knows nothing of. Jesus also is worthy of high honor. I don't have to make that argument. But you know, this this donkey would have been very useful to its owner. But that owner, as I said before, <coughs> lent him the donkey and Jesus had the first ride. It would be a little like you buying a new car and then going to your friend and say, <coughs> you drive it off a lot. You go take my car for its virgin voyage. Um, you know was that, um, is that worthy of mention I don't know I'm not sure but I think, it's, I think it is um, it is worthy in the fact that in the Old Testament over and over again it says I want your first fruits I want the first lamb I want the first goat I want this I want the first are we giving Jesus our first I really believe that's the lesson we can learn here with, with God all things are possible And let Jesus have our first. Alright, now we come to the Prince of Peace, the main character of the story. What are some lessons we can learn from the Prince of Peace this morning? Well, the lessons are probably endless, I'm going to limit them a bit. The first lesson I see is that Jesus loves people and he was ready to engage with them and there was all kinds of people we went through that before but think about the disciples uh, motley crew they were I appreciated Ellis' uh, um, talk Wednesday night it, it just once again riveted in my mind what a, what a motley ragtag crew that actually was but Jesus loved those people and he engaged with those people for three years he got frustrated with them and everything else but he, he loved those people he really did Jesus loved the crowd that day. You know, this crowd was probably a little misled. I don't know what percentage was, but it seems like they might have been a little misled. But they were excited. That day they were excited. Jesus was coming and and Jesus knew what was on their minds. Jesus knew that they were looking for a physical ruler. But what did Jesus do that day? He just left them do it. He's like, today is not the day for teaching. Today is the day of celebration. Even though they were a little bit off. I'm not sure if this is a lesson here or not, but I'll let you decide. You know, there was many times that Jesus did use times like these to engage with people and, and, and point them on the right direction. You know, he could have said, now look, um, I understand you're looking for somebody to deliver from Rome, but that's not what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. And he could have, he could have engaged in that way, but he didn't. Could it be that there's a time to engage people and there's a time not to engage people. I'm going to suggest that there perhaps is. I'm also going to um, suggest that we maybe err a little on not engaging when we should rather than the other way, but truly remember that we don't always have to set people straight, right? We don't have to do that. There's a time and a place for everything, and there's just a time to be quiet too. And um, these people learned pretty quickly what Jesus was about. So maybe there's a lesson there for us. The other people that I see Jesus engaging with that just deserves a little blip here in verse 14. It says the blind and the lame came to him and he healed them. The blind and the lame knew that Jesus had something to offer. They sure did. And folks, we still have plenty of spiritually blind and lame people in our world today. Plenty, way too many. Do the blind and the lame people of our day know that Jesus still has something to offer? The only way they're going to know that is if you and I tell them. And we exemplify that to them. All right. another thing we can learn from Jesus. The reason for this whole affair was in verse 5. I'm sorry, verse 4. All this was done that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet. That was the sole reason right there That's the reason. Jesus, different times, it says, this was done, so the scriptures were fulfilled. How about us today? Are we equally concerned about fulfilling the scriptures? Now, none of us are going to fulfill prophecy per se, all right? But are we still concerned that the scriptures, down to the detail, are important and important for us to exemplify? I'll just say this, it bothers me a little wee bit, or maybe a lot depending on the day, when I hear somebody say, now I don't practice this particular part of the scriptures because I have no conviction about it. I don't have a conviction. Listen, you don't need a conviction. All you need to do is obey. That's all you need to do. I don't have any conviction about it either. I just know that that's what the Bible says and I'm going to do it. I I will say if you want to ruffle my fur a little bit, just tell me that. You don't need a conviction to obey the Bible. What you need is a conviction. One. You need one conviction. And that is you're going to do what the Bible says. You're going to fulfill Scripture. Jesus was all about Scripture. Uh, that's, That's what He was about. How about us? Are we about that as well? Another lesson from Jesus in verse 10. It says that when He came into Jerusalem, the city was moved. I'm not sure what that all entails. But... One thing we know that it seems like everywhere he went, there was commotion. There was like a crowd. People knew that he was there. And why did they know that? Because he was different. He was different than the mundane person around. He taught as one with authority, not like the scribes, it says. Now, we're not Jesus, and we're not going to make that kind of stir as we move around. I, I get that. I understand that. But we should be making a little bit of a stir. When we go places, we should. And I'm going to give you an example, and not because it happened to me, because it's going to happen to any one of you. I'm convinced of it. But it happened to me the other week. So I'm in at the Agri-News show, and I'm just going up and down the, the, um, the, um, you know, the show there. And I'm, you know, I'm not really giving many people time a day. I'm just kind of looking. And, and there's this one guy that was obviously bored there at his, at his booth. And so he could tell I was bored as well. So he engaged me. And there was, um, his, his gig was uh, selling, um, well, he was a financial advisor, and so he was selling investments and this and that. And um, so he engaged me in, in the, the whole thing of investments and whatever. And I gave him, I listened to his spiel, and then he gave me time to respond to his, uh, to his spiel. So I did. I responded to it, and I just kindly, in a, in a brief, nice way, told him why he did, why I wasn't interested and I didn't cite any Bible verses or anything like this. I just told him. And then he goes to me, and I've never had anybody ask me this before. Maybe you have. But he said, are you a man of faith? That's me. I said, now I've got a question for you. Why did you ask me that? He said, almost everybody I talk to is seriously worried about the future. And he said, I don't get the sense that you are. Well, he caught me on the right day. Let's put it that, because <laughs> I, you know, some days it could have been different. But my point is, I didn't create a stir that day. But but I did have an interchange with a person, and that person, for whatever reason, caught on that there's something a little different. A little different here. We, we did have a good conversation after that, and um, i I was really happy with with our interchange from that point on and as a matter of fact, he sent me a card later that week, and he said, yeah, I was really happy to talk to you so anyway i was uh, i was i was I was happy that I could share with that man that day let 's go on Another lesson we can learn from Jesus, and I want to be careful with this one too, but in verses twelve and thirteen it Jesus went into that temple and he cleaned that temple. And I'm not going to get into, into the theology of that. It seems a little bit uncharacteristic for the rest of the story and and Jesus' peaceful kingdom. But there's two things I want to emphasize. Number one, you don't have to understand everything. Jesus was a man without sin and he did the right thing here. Is it right for you and me to, to do things like that? Well, no, I would say no. Okay, But Jesus had the authority to do that. On another occasion when this happened it says that the disciples remembered that it is written of him the zeal of thine house has eaten thee up. Now that part folks we can get we can we can do that. Has the zeal of God's house eaten you up? Are we people that are zealous about the things of God? There is nothing wrong with fervor and zeal about the things of God. I had to think of the verse in Jude where Jude is summarizing his epistle and it just seems like he's, he's um, the intensity just gets, gets more and more as you read through that small epistle. And at the very end he said, and if some have compassion making a difference and others save with fear pulling them out of the fire hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Now that sounds like fervor and zeal to me. And that's okay folks. That's okay. Are you and I known as men and women that are zealous for the things of God? I'm going to finish up on this one in verse 16. After uh, the chief priests and scribes had um, engaged Jesus here, he says to them this question He says, Yea, have you never read? Yea, have you never read? Jesus was a man of the word, he had read. And he said to these guys, have you read? Has that happened to you? How would you answer Jesus today if he asked you, Yay, have you ever read? Have you? Are we people that are reading God's word, soaking it up, and making a very part of our lives so that we can come right back and say, Yes, I have read. I have read that. I have read. You know, sometimes you read a story and when you're done, you say, where's the punchline? Where was the climax of that story? And that's a little bit the way it is when I read this account. It's like lots of little details, but where's the climax? As I grapple with this, I think the climax or the punchline is in verse 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting on an ass... And a colt, the foal of an ass. If we would read in, I believe it's John. It says he adds this. He goes, "Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king comes." He adds the "fear not" part. Of course, the daughter of Zion refers to the Jewish nation as a whole. What what this is saying is here. Th- these were times of turmoil, confusion, unrest, dissatisfaction. Just not good times in Jewish history. History, all right. And here, in the midst of this hullabaloo, we have this little verse that is very settling. "Fear not, because your King comes." What a wonderful, what a wonderful verse. What a wonderful um, reassurance in those times of turmoil. And you know, nothing has changed in thousands of years. All through history, there's been times of turmoil. We, we live in times of turmoil today. We do. And Jesus has the very same words. Fear not. Your king comes. The king is the same. His message is still relevant. And his character is consistent. And we have no reason to fear